The 3CR Gardening Show is coming to you today from the Woi Wurrung Nation. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as the traditional owners of this land. We recognise the practices of care and cultivation of the land and waters by the First Peoples and pay our respects to their elders past and present. Wherever you are and wherever you garden, we encourage you to know whose land you're on. This is the 3CR Garden Show. I'm Virginia Haywood, and with me this morning are Stephen Ryan and Clive Blackman. Good morning. Both nurserymen. Good Good wet morning. (laughs) A very wet morning, I'd have to say. It is. It's very damp out there. Um, I thought the the La Nina had finished, but it's going out with a bang, isn't it, really? Yeah, but if you come back over Melbourne in autumn, you have one or two days every couple of weeks where it just... Buckets down for a day and then goes away again for a few days. And well, does, so. it does make our gardens happy. Oh, it does. Mm. I don't have to do any watering either, so it yes. makes me happy as well. Oh, we still do because we've got plastic over everything. Oh, you do, of course, yes. Mm. So you've still got to water. Just a little bit less. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, it's the worst time of year for watering in the nursery. It's mm. early, mid-spring and mid-autumn because the airs can be moist and the next day it can be sunny and hot. Like mm. We're doing 21 degrees and sunny on Tuesday. Well. That'll stress the plants out, so it's all over the place. Mm. Yeah. Well, I've just come back from six days in Tasmania and down, right down south. And um, one day I went swimming. It was sunny. It was beautiful. The water was absolutely icy. Yeah, I was mm. going to say the water wouldn't have been warm. <laughs> oh, it was cold. But the other days, if I could see the mountains, they were in snow. Mm. And we sat in fog for days, and I was mm. completely off the grid. So we're beginning to worry that our batteries were going to run out. <laughs> And then suddenly the sun came back and it was beautiful. And I was very pleased to get home and found there'd be quite a bit of rain in my garden. Yeah, Yeah. it's part of the fun part of of, of living in Australia. We have the the huge ranges of weather. Much better than living in some of those countries where it just drizzles. Island, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, now there's a good climate to grow stuff in, I have to say. Well, that is one of the things about our climate that we... Our worst thing is when we those 40-degree days. Oh, February yes. can be bad, but otherwise we grow beautifully. Mm. Yeah, well, it's very lucky in Melbourne. There's not many types of plant you can't grow somewhere. Some of the tropical plants we've got customers growing, you know, white sapodium, black sapodium in the suburbs of Melbourne and fruiting. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we can get away with all sorts of stuff. Not sure about true alpines, but we can get away with sub-alpines. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, a lot of those things that do need some winter chill seem to manage in Melbourne, you know, so it just gets... Just cold enough. Don't think herbaceous peonies are much chop in Melbourne, but a lot of other stuff <coughs> will actually perform and do their thing in Melbourne, which is really good. But then again, Massenden and the Dandong Ranges are sort of part of Melbourne. Oh, well, no, it's not. We're in the country. <laughs> <laughs> We're not part of suburbia. How had, dare you? I had, oh, I had a friend who used to get really upset whining um, some of the wineries. I live in the Yarra Valley. Where do you live? I live in Kensington. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I mean, the Yarra Valley isn't as cool as the Dandies. No. Because no. Clive and I are both in the Yarra Valley, mm. but we are 
much easier to grow some things than down in Melbourne. Oh, yes. Yeah, we'll still get a few minus ones sort of in the middle of winter at a place in London. Mm. Our little old place is on the side of a cliff, so it doesn't, tends not to get quite so cold because the cold air just runs down yeah. to a place called Coldstream. <laughs> Funnily enough, well, which, well and aptly named. Which about 20 years ago was when Queensland Palms opened their first nursery in Coldstream, and I thought... You didn't Ooh. read the name of the place, did you? Because <laughs> that does seem slightly odd, but anyhow. Well, that's always what saves me. I very rarely lose things to the frost because it rolls down the hill. Mm. Frost well, is very convenient. Yeah. It is water. Well, it's part of why my father picked the nursery back in the mid-'80s of property because it has a northwest aspect and as a propagation nursery, it's not a stock plant you want to grow. Mm. So you can grow a different range of propagate different range of plants and that's why I picked it. And yeah. The side of the cliff we deal with. <laughs> yes, yes. You need one leg longer than the yeah. other, almost at your place there. I have to say, but anyhow, <laughs> I used to grow up in, an, or I grew up in a nursery that was in a similar sort of uh, site up on the top of Mount Macedon, where we had to terrace everything, um, and I got very good at driving the tractor on the two back wheels and up the hill <laughs> <laughs> with a load of plants yeah. on board. Um, Sounds pro- dangerous. Yes, probably amazing. I'm still here, actually, but there you go. We had a fellow nurseryman in Hawke's Bay, and he's on, there's a big little mountain in the middle of Hawke's Bay, and he's right on the edge of that, and all his tunnels run down, and they're, they're really steep. You don't, if you trip over, you'll roll all the way down. It's, <laughs> that's a, uh, it's all fun and games. Happy to be in a slightly flat site, I have to say, when it comes to running a business. So how's the nursery going, Stephen? Oh, look, it's had its ups and downs over the last few months. Um, But the nursery industry tends to be like that, you know, and sometimes you can't really pin down why. I mean, the La Nina right through um, early spring uh, was a double-edged sword because it would often be pouring rain on a weekend when, when of course, I'm expecting Mm. most of my clients to come in, although it never kept away the really enthusiastic ones, which were nearly always the ones that were going to spend money anyway. Um, It kept away a few of the, you know, ice cream lickers, as I call them, because they come in to finish their ice cream before they get back in their car. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so it's been sort of all over the place, but I've had a remarkably busy week this week. Stuff's been walking out, quite expensive plant lines that... Clients have suddenly decided they needed uh, that have been sitting around a while and I've been starting to wonder whether I'd ever sell them and then suddenly off they go. You just, you can never tell. I think also when the weather gets very unpleasant, people tend to stop buying because they mm. think, oh, I can't plant now, mm. you know. There's also the um, the economy, which is a, a mixed, mixed sword for our industry. Mm. And when, same in the drought, when things are changing people stop buying plants. Mm. As soon as the water restrictions settle down, no matter what they are, when they just stop changing, mm. and my belief is when the interest rates stop changing, people go, right, this is what I have to live with, I'll now adjust to it. Mm. When it keeps changing, they say, well, we're not doing anything until we settle. Yeah, it's until you know what you're doing yeah. or where you are. Yeah. And I'm, I'm hoping the industry will pick up, because the, industry, the whole industry's been quiet over the last six to eight weeks, and mm. we, this week, post-east, is our quietest post-east a week that we can never remember. Really? That's interesting. And do either of you know how Melbourne International did? I haven't heard No, only that it had good, good, good crowds. The weather mm. wasn't too bad overall for it. Mm. Oh, the weather was appalling for the first several days. Yeah, well, but I have to but say, the only, <laughs> the only thing I've heard is I had a client in the nursery yesterday, the day before, and she was disappointed. She said there wasn't enough display gardens, there wasn't enough nurseries, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't enough planty things. I, I think there's the display gardens, but we are definitely missing... Some of, I mean, um, so many of the three CR 
uh, clients are not there anymore. The, the reason you're is not their it, clients. It's, it's a, a double-edged sword, and I feel sorry for the, the organisers of Mifcus because they've got to charge us huge amounts of money to have a stand there, mm. and we, we we struggle to cover the costs. Mm. But their problem is they're on a the the Carlton Gardens and the exhibition buildings. It's controlled by a large corporation for all the catering and everything else. They pay huge weekend wages, so they've got to charge to cover the costs, and it just gets really hard. And, and what do you do? Do you have to go out to the country to have the garden show when it's not as good then? It, it just becomes a problem. It's a financial issue. Mm. Well, the, I mean, we used to have quite a few people who come in here who had stalls mm. there, and now I think Jane is the only one remaining, yeah. Jane Tonkin, yeah. who's at another set of stalls, um, another garden show this weekend up up in out of Sydney. Yeah, Collector's Fair, yeah. Mm. Mm. Our friends who do the irises, though, they drive down from Albury Wodonga. They bought 20% more this year. They were still sold out by 9am Sunday morning. Yeah, well, there you uh, go. But, uh, but that, that, they just have a great time. They do a good job. But it's just hard You're covering your costs. It, um, like they do the irises so they can pack a lot of irises in a small space and get a good price. With our perennials in the small tubes, mm. you know, we have to sell 30,000 tubes to cover the costs of the... Before you can buy your first Vegemite sandwich. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is. It's difficult. I mean, I would never even look at a stall at Mifkus. I mean, I just don't grow enough plant material and mm. uh, I certainly wouldn't make enough to uh, to cover my costs. So, um, and that's and, without paying yourself a wage. Yeah. Well, yeah, I wouldn't even consider doing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's the one. That's so, um, yeah, so it is difficult. Uh, and I've always had this feeling that the... Organisers should have something built in to encourage some of the really small specialist growers to come along, some sort of special smaller site at a cheaper price to encourage some of those sort of people along because they're never going to go there. That is definitely what people were missing, I think, because some of the displays were very good. I mean, one of the ironic things was you could see that they'd all used the same plant supplier. You know, there was... Total repetition of mm. it happens Agastation. every year. But mm. I reckon if you go to a fashion show, the, 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 the trends are so similar. You think, would well, you all sit around one night and have a drink and work out what you're going to do for this year's fashion? Yeah. It's the same. Mm. Seriously, I just think it's just coming back to a cost. Mm. You know, they've got to pay a lot of money to the government. They've got to pay a lot of money to the union organised companies. They've got to pay a lot of money for wages. It just gets higher and higher and higher. And the only choice they've really got is to move to a, a different site, and then that that takes away the beauty of it. Yeah. Well, oh, one of the one mm. of the really good things about it is it's so accessible mm. by public transport, mm. and, and even parking. You, know, you can park almost any. There's lots of parking around if you don't want to. You know, a five hundred kilometre walk. That's not a big issue for mm. modern world. But uh, then again, next mm. weekend we have the Yarra yes, Valley on a completely pa- different <laughs> uh, topic. Hardly. Well, exactly the same topic, but yeah. a very different style because yeah. the small growers and the and the especially the people who grow unusual things are going to be there. Mm. Well, that, that's that's our target, the plant, Yarra Valley Plant Fair and Garden Expo. This is our third autumn one, and our, okay, we've done five spring runs now. And that's part of why we're not at Flower and Garden Shows, because we spend too much time organising this. It's all about getting those our friends in the industry who we know and like and get them to come and sell and talk to the public. And a lot of them are wholesalers. Mm. And my oldest son, who's up at Collector's Fair, said, do you know that? It's actually quite good. I get to meet the public as a wholesaler. I get to actually meet and talk to the public about what they want. Mm. And for some of the wholesalers, it's the only time they talk to the to our end consumer mm. and get a real feel for what the gardening public want and what's changing out there. And so it's great both ways that. 
and some of the plant guys there, they're just passionate. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Ben Farr from Treasure Perennials, he's just a mad, keen, passionate grower of seed grown perennials. Uh, I see Ben as possibly my, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Apprent- he's going to take over from mm. the likes of me and others that are getting getting longer in the tooth. And so he's the next generation, hopefully, of passionate gardeners yeah. and well, horticulturalists. Well, he, he is exciting because... Mm. You know, I go to your place, I go to mm. Ben's store, mm. I find things I don't know. I go mm. into Bunnings and I have real trouble finding a single plant I don't know. Well, I'm yeah. glad because that keeps independent gardens had a strong and vibrant. Mm. But see, Ben's been buying off our other Larkman nurseries for since he first started. His first foray was buying thousands of penstemons. <laughs> he grew 500 of every single penstemon he could. And we said, geez, I wonder if he's going to sell all those penstemons. And we watched him mature and grow as a plant collector, yeah. as well as a gardener. And a nurseryman, and, and he's he is um, so into finding things out. He's so he yeah. so wants to know how. So he, when he comes in here, he always provides a piece of knowledge that mm. our listeners haven't had before, mm. which is makes it quite exciting. I'm part of another organisation called the International Plant Propagator Society, and we've got our, our conference in May. And our motto is to seek and share. And everybody in the society, all they ever want to do is seek knowledge and then share it. And Ben's a classic example of that. Mm. He found his niche of seed-grown perennials, whereas like people like antique perennials, they had cut-and-grown stuff they imported. He's all onto the seed-grown stuff. And he has some amazingly rare and unusual mm. plants. And Okay, they're not showy in a, as a, a big display of like a mass of roses. They're interesting and they're different. And the flowers that could be nice or the foliage is nice or the way it grows is nice or even sometimes the story behind it is nice. But, and also, you don't always want the really loud, showy thing in your garden because it can actually detract from all the rest of the garden. I mean, that's about actually doing a bit of garden design, as it were. Mm. Yes, exactly. So, next weekend, yes. I'll be up there. Um, Steve's our as, MC. Yes, as, as is my usual sort of job, which is fantastic. I enjoy doing that. So, we need to sort of give people, I guess, a... Uh, basic rundown on what they can expect. We've already told them that they'll see fantastic plant growers yeah. and things, but there'll also be allied trade people there yeah. as well. So, got Paul from Gardenaceous with all his amazing, good, top-quality garden tools yep. and, and mm-hmm. really good stuff. And then we've got the gentleman with Windsong having his, his wind chimes. Just... I hope, I hope there's a gentle breeze. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't need the wind chimes doing Wagner's ring cycle whilst we're trying to deal with everything else around the place. Uh, he'll be there. And um, we've got about four or five of these artists doing the, the rusty metal sculptures, mm. but we hand-pick them so they're not all the same. Yeah, yeah, so rusty. different sorts of things. Yeah. And, of course, there'll be um, uh, food and beverages available so people don't need to starve while they're no, no, wandering no, around no. looking at plant material. Our friend who does our scones, she's driving down from um, Taree now, Yeah, and she'll bake 600 scones in the little oven we have in the in the, in the the on the nursery itself. So they're not pre-bought. She comes and she makes the whole lot there, the whole 600. Oh, goodness me. With lemonade and cream. And everybody who has them goes, oh, they're the scones of my childhood. Mm. And she makes, she's making all the jam at the moment, raspberry jam. <laughs> uh, some, some people really are amazing what that time and, and effort they can put into things. And she's in her late 70s. Yeah. So, and, and then we'll have um, David Little from Radiant Gardens. He's building his garden display this weekend. And one of the girls who did the back the balcony garden displays at Mifkis on that top wall. Yeah. Marty Fuchs, she's coming out to do recreating her little display there. Oh, fantastic. Great. So there'll be display gardens as well yeah. as uh, allied trades plus plants plus food. And uh, then Di happened to be speaking to Eric from Fernie Creek and he said, oh, I'm the state organiser of fundraising for kids with cancer. Mm. 
And I said, well, perhaps we can do something with kids with cancer. Well, now it's bigger than Ben-Hur. Um, we've actually had garden city plastics, who are our major supplier of pots for the industry, yeah. have produced these beautiful little white pots. Ah, oh, fantastic. And, and they donated them, and we have kids potting. Oh, fantastic. And on Saturday and Sunday. Oh, yep. And Jane Emerson's coming out on the Sunday to pot with the kids, so that's fantastic. And then a friend of Jane's is a lady called Debbie Dax, who's a, a dog person. Mm. So we've got a child, child, children's dog show on the Sunday. <laughs> So the, oh, things have got a little out of hand, haven't they, Clive? <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. And we've got someone, Dave Little, he's built a wishing well yeah. and a maze and is building a sand pit. And we've got, and Dice said to kids with cancer, you need something to help raise funds. So they've gone to our local baker and they've got a cake stall and he's donated all these cakes. Oh, fabulous. So it's just, it's yeah. gone bang. And of course, we're having the big fun, uh, the help to fundraise for Kids for Cancer yeah. on the Sunday afternoon when we're having the big plant auction. We've got and two we auctions. Had... We've got one on Saturday. You didn't know you, this. No, you haven't told me this. <laughs> all right, so we've got two auctions. The Saturday right. one is the growers are donating plants and all of that goes to the kids with yeah. cancer. The Sunday one is the really rare plants, mm-hmm. which the 10, your, the 10% goes to the kids with cancer there as well. So. All right, so I better keep my voice in good fettle if that's the case. Mm. If I'm going to be auctioneering twice, that's yeah. Yeah, but we'll do it. Um, so there's all those sorts of things going on up there. Plus, of course, I'll be there. You'll mm. be there, Clive. You'll be there. Vasily will be there. Yeah. Jane Tonkin, yeah. Ben from Treasured, yeah. Meryl from Seed. So quite yeah. a number of the people who mm. come on our show will be there. So yeah. watch out for these people, everybody, yeah, and what say trying, hello. What we want to do is we started as a plant fair. And everybody came on Wednesday, on the Saturday, just to see the plants. And then we became a garden expert. We want it to be an event, a plant mm. event. So you come for half a day, a whole day, and you see more than just look at some rare plants. You can talk to people. You can go on the dog show. Yeah. yeah it's, it's so it becomes an event, so you come and spend a few hours there and just enjoy an And afternoon. you need those extra things to, if you're bringing kids so that they've got something they can be enjoy. occupied with. Because, yeah, so. of course, Car Bloom's on at the moment too. Yes. At, um, Tesla's. Tesla's. Yeah. And that runs till Anzac Day, which is the 25th of this month. And yeah. they've got circus things on this yeah. week and next week there. Oh, fantastic. Which is something exciting Well, for the in kids. fact, that's not that far away either. You could do both in the yep. one day quite yep. easily. Yep, so it's, it could make a great day out less for the family. Than, less than 30 minutes drive. Mm. Well, I went to Carbloom the other day and the, and the paddock, which they mm. sow, I don't know, tens of thousands of flowers in, mm. it just looks Fabulous. Mm. It's actually interesting. Case Tesla it was a very, very close friend of mine, probably my best friend, and um, Paul took over the business. And then Case died. And one of Paul's trips, he went to Hokkaido in Japan. And Hokkaido has this flower, this festival of coloured flowers. And he saw that. He said, we can do that. And he came home and did it. And what Paul's created is just stunning. It's, just, mm. it's a vision. And he made it happen. It is. It is. It is really. It's worth a visit, yeah. particularly if we have a beautiful day. Yeah. It is so lovely. The colour. It's just mm. stunning. So I suggest the Yarra Valley is the place to go next weekend. Someone asked me if there's anything else to do in the way of plants, and I said, "What in the Yarra Valley? You've got aloe and gardens. You've got all the gardens up in the hills. Blue, is Blue Lotus still open or they're finished?" Ah, oh, they're. Pr- I don't know. They might just be yeah. open still. It'd be so worth having a look. Yeah. So there's so much to do in the way of horticulture. Yeah. It's a bit like your district. It's yeah, just- exactly. I mean, there's always something to be doing around the Macedon Ranges. I mean, at the moment it's leaf peeping. So it's everybody, what? leaf peeping. 
<laughs> it's an American term. The Americans call they, is when, that like pee pee? No. When when autumn hits in America, they have special sites all mm. over the place. You can go on on on, uh, uh, on your device and find out where the leaves are at their best, and you go and peep at the leaves. So it's leaf peeping. So that's I've I've taken that term from the Americans and using it because I think it's very descriptive of what goes on because people come up just basically to engage with bright red leaves. You know, no, so that sounds like someone's hiding behind the red leaves, peeping at what's going on behind them. Well, I have to say one or two people, uh, that's one of the reasons why they closed off Honor Avenue for only pedestrian traffic during the weekends on these periods because people were doing things like lying in the middle of the road and covering themselves with leaves uh, to get a selfie taken and I call those speed humps. <laughs> <laughs> I call them temporary Australians. Yeah, yeah. So, so there was a lot of silly things going on so the council just had to step in and say alright well on the weekends of April Honor Avenue is closed to well, vehicle traffic. Anyway. Well it is good although it does create some yeah. other logistic issues for the district but it does give people the opportunity to enjoy the leaves without feeling like they're going to get crushed by me coming down the road in a red van <laughs> and get their picture taken again that. But it will build over time and yeah. become an event. Oh, yeah. A bit like passes in Maine and Vermont in America where the leaves are just so critical, Beechworth and, mm. and Bright but, up here. But you have these things happening both in the Dandenongs and up at Macedon yeah. and it does make you realise how narrow many of the roads are and mm. how neither of these spaces can contain a huge number of people. Yeah, and that, that is the issue, is trying yeah. to manage the, the people that come into the area. I mean, the council's doing a reasonably good job. They've allocated car parking spaces. They've got shuttle buses that they're running up and down Mount Macedon Road to drop people off at the gardens and different things that they can be doing. Um, and, you know, so they're doing their best and they have an information shelter uh, in, in Centennial Park so you can go and find out what's going on and how you can engage That's with it all. That's brilliant. That's really and good. And I, I think it's pretty good. Some of the locals still whinge about it a bit and, you know, well, why are we doing this and... Move. Yeah, I think – yeah, well, that's, that's part of the problem of Mount Macedon, though, because it used to be a little hidden away enclave mm. where wealthy people bought huge properties mm. and it was somewhere they could go to hide. And so they were never really that interested in tourism and tourists. Mm. Uh, they wanted to keep Mount mm. Macedon to themselves. And so any of these things that sort of happen in the area, they'll grumble about, you know, blasted mm. cars and people. We have a call. Oh, we haven't even mentioned the numbers yet. Oh, no. <laughs> we'll take our first call from, from Michael and then we'll mention the numbers. Yes, what a good, good idea. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Uh, yeah. Oh, that, 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 that is fantastic. I, what Stephen was saying about Mount Macedon is intriguing. But um, I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll just quickly get to my, my topic because you were talking about the cost of... Uh, Cost of things um, around here in Forest Hill, um, the cost of living is very high. You know, so um, it's um, you know, can we afford? I mean, I, 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 I'm intrigued about this this uh, issue about uh, you know, uh, you know, can, can can we afford to buy plants now? Can we? You know, I think there's no doubt, Michael, that some people are really struggling mm. and, and yeah. can't afford to buy not only plants, but some people are having to stop by their coffee, which is mm. 
for Melbourne. Indeed. It's a bit of a crisis. Yeah. <coughs> I have to say, though, we can't not afford to buy plants in can one we sense. Can we afford not to buy plants? Yeah, exactly, because I know that most many people see having plants around you as a luxury, yeah. but in yeah. fact, if we don't green our spaces, we won't yeah. have green spaces to go to, and that would be a disaster. I think I to pick up, Mike, one times are tough. You have to buy smaller plants and, and do more growing from yourself or by cutting or propagation or, mm. or buying baby plants and growing them on. Mm. And then yeah, look, as a nurseryman, I have no objection as... Uh, as people will know, because I come in here on a regular basis, for people to propagate their own. And that's the other thing that uh, in gardening you can do, which you can't do in almost any other hobby in known to man, mm. where you can actually yeah. start your own plant from from nothing mm. and at yeah. no cost really. Um, and mm. so you can, in fact, create a garden, dare I say, without engaging with a nurseryman if you really want to. So there are ways around these things. And the other yeah. thing, of course, is that we've seen that when you can't do anything, when you've got to give up the things that you used to mm. do, which was travelling distances and mm. going to the movies and visiting lots of friends. And eating. If you have a garden, you mm. I mean, the lockdown did show us that if you had a garden, at least you had something creative mm. to do and it didn't Yeah, and it gives you solace. You yes. go out into the garden, you enjoy your roses in flower or your herbs growing or whatever else you're engaged with in your garden. And I see gardening as not a luxury thing. I see it as a necessity for people. So... Um, 100% agree you know, with you, 100%. And, and it doesn't have to be expensive. Yeah, look, I totally agree. I, I, I understand what you're saying because I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a horticulturalist myself sort of thing, so I know I know what you're saying sort of thing. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah. But, I, Mike, I, yeah. I think it's a very, very good point that you raise that, you know, people are – there are people who are struggling. There are, of course, people who aren't struggling at all, but mm. there are a lot of people who are struggling at the moment. Uh, yeah. Anyway, look, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying the show and I'll... Thank uh, you. You know, to, uh, kind regards. Thank kind you very Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Bye-bye, Michael. <laughs> yes, I think um, mm. Clive has brought this, this monster into... <laughs> Into the studio. Yeah, and we're talking about a plant, not Clive. I was, I was trying to work out what you're talking about here. Absolute monster. Yes. It, it doesn't work visually on radio, but... Yeah. I have taken a photo, and I'm hoping Lizzie will put it online for us. What is it? It's interesting. Um, as you know, in the past, I've talked about our quarantine facility. And just prior to the start of COVID, the indoor plant market took off. And one of the big plants that everyone wanted was the... Monstera Thai constellation, and there are two or three people importing it at the time, and it's very expensive. And they're expensive to buy them out of; they weren't cheap. They were costing two, three hundred dollars out of Thailand and China. Mm. And one person brought one in, and she gave me one piece of it. And this is back about seven or eight years ago. And we, as a propagation nursery, grew it and grew it and grew it. That's not that's the one you see. There's one we're going to be selling. My personal one is three times the size of that. This oh, is Scott. <laughs> and it's it, it just it's it's a good Thai constellation. It's got great variegation, um, big patches of white with speckles all through it. So it's a monstera. Yeah, yeah monstera. Monstera. No, yes, yeah. we all say that, don't we? Monsteria. Yeah, yeah. I don't know where the eye came, came in, from. but everybody says <laughs> monstera, yeah. and it's not. But yeah. anyhow, and um, one of the one of our indoor growers, he managed to get it into tissue culture, and so the market's a lot fuller. But they're still expensive. But the TC varieties aren't quite as good as, as the real original cutting grown. Thai constellation, which is what that is. As you can see, the the leaves are just they lighten up the room because of the splashes of white through them. Yes. Makes me laugh though, because in a sense, 
some of these plants are fairly quick growing and not overly difficult to prop. So, you know, they can be built up. Mm. Um, and some of the prices people were paying for some of these plants were outrageous. I mm. mean, really high prices. Well, my big one will still sell for three or $4,000 now <sighs> because there's only 20 of them in the country. Mm. Well, Jane walked into my place the other day and said, pointed at a plant in that I've got in the garden, which has been there for years mm-hmm. and it's never flowered and it's in flower. And she said, I could sell that for $500. Mm. I said, what? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it flowers, it t- takes a long time to flower. But we've got to remember, you, know, you might collect cigarette boxes or matchboxes or toy tractors. And if you want a really rare toy tractor built in 1920 in England, they'll pay 20, 30, 40, 50,000 yeah. for it. Mm. Well, the plants are the same. The only difference is... You, you can ha- propagate plants. You can't propagate a 1920s yes. tractor. But you, but you can also <laughs> you can also kill them too. Yeah, well, yes, yeah, well, there is that side <laughs> yeah, of it so, as well. So there's but a balance. And that um, that is always one of the things for me when I see a really expensive plant. Ooh. I think now am I going to be able to keep this damn thing alive? Mm. And yeah. often the answer is no. Yeah, I just I yeah, just, it can put people off. Mm. I will just say that this is the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm Virginia, and with me are Stephen Ryan and Clive Larkman. If you want to give us a ring, the number is nine four one nine. 0155, or you can text us on 0488 809 855. That's 94190155 or 0488 809 855. Fantastic. Yeah, so but the other thing I wanted to say about the Monstera or actually variegated plants in general, it's interesting how they galvanise people in horticulture. You know, Mm. you get the people who just fall in love with them and they'll go out and pay their $3,000 for a Thai constellation Mm. or whatever, and then you get the others that can't stand variegation. It really is one of those things in horticulture that really galvanises people into different camps. It does, doesn't it? And some absolutely hate them. But if you understand the way plant evolution is, that's what this is all about. It's just mm. unusual changes and things. Yep. Whereas there's other plants they love and they don't actually realise that they came from the similar sort of mutations or growth habits. It's- yeah, I have a lot of fun on YouTube with um, Matthew, my offsider, because he vows and declares he hates variegated plants and I've mm. done a few stories on variegated mm. plants because I actually quite like them. And um, he vows and declares that, but he was up at the nursery last week. We were doing some filming. We did one on um, growing lapageria. What else did we do? Oh, uh, autumn colouring shrubs instead of as opposed to trees, so mm. things that colour nicely in the autumn but uh, aren't trees. Uh, and he walked out with a variegated plant. <laughs> and I nearly pointed out the irony of this whole situation. No, 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 no don't do and that. And I thought, no, he's bought the plant. I'm not going to now rub it in. <laughs> no, no, no. You'll get into trouble. You'll yeah, in trouble. I will. I will. But, yeah. yeah, it is. It's really interesting how people look at these things. But, of course, the nursery industry actually survives to a large extent off novelty. So if we've got something new, interesting, different that's come along... <laughs> You can propagate that plant. You'll engage with the public because it's something they haven't seen before. Mm. Uh, and people do love novelty. Mm. It's part of the reason why the nursery industry in New Zealand has almost died because they can hardly bring anything in anymore. Except yeah. they do breed extraordinarily good plants. Oh, they, they look. They have some breeders. good stuff of their own, but their mm. nursery industry is in dreadful decline. There's a limit of the breeding you can do if you can't um, bring in your new genetic stuff. material. Yeah. And that's yeah. that's and. With my quarantine, they've got to understand if the government makes it too hard, mm-hmm. 
they just smuggle them in because oh, they want that was, you. That's always been my point, Clive. Why does our government feel that they're going to protect us from new pests and diseases by making it more expensive, more bureaucratic and more difficult to import new plant material because it will send people underground and they will start smuggling? And mm. the ones that are likely to bring in the diseases aren't the nursery people. It's more likely to be that's mum a, who's a, smuggling a, a rhetorical cutting. question because you don't want me to answer that because... I'll take up the rest of the whole show. <laughs> All right. I've answered it for <laughs> us then. Um, but it is something that, you know, I think I've always had this bugbear about it because it's only the big boys to an extent that can then bring in plant material because they know they're going to sell 100,000, I don't know, flower carpet roses mm. or whatever it is. So it's worth importing that plant. But if I want to bring in some obscure woodland perennial from Japan mm. that I'm going to sell a handful of every year. Well, we have a poor guy who's brought in and he's, he'll be at the plant show and he specialises in Carnivorous plants. His yeah. name is Carnivora, Carnivaro, is his website. He bought a whole shipment in from Malaysia with a Malaysian export CITES permit. Mm. He didn't have the matching Australian import CITES permit, which is identical permit, just a different logo on the top. <laughs> oh, no. So they took his plants in a box, because this wasn't the this wasn't biosecurity, this was customs. Yeah. And put him in a box in a two-degree storage room. Oh no. And we, we managed. I managed to convince them that while you sort the argument out, let them put them in IPEQ because he hasn't got them. They're, they're mm. still secure. We hope we'll get about 40 50% survival. Oh. And he's desolate because he's, he's one of these people that every plant's a baby. It's a yeah, special plant. Yeah, they're precious. They're really important to people. And what they're doing is just push, they're pushing him underground. It's yeah. just. It yeah. is. It's, it's, well, I forgot to say before, we were talking about Car Bloom and mm. the Yarra Valley Plant Fair. But, of course, next weekend, Fernie Creek has its autumn show mm. as well. Ah, yes, well, there's something else to do so whilst you're over so in the Yarra Valley absolutely area. absolutely for the Yarra Valley and the Dandenongs mm. next weekend, Fernie mm. Creek, which will be excellent. Yep. So you well, come out, you spend Saturday at Fernie morning at Fernie Creek, Saturday afternoon at Kabloom, stay the, stay the night in a nice motel, come out to our place on Sunday for the dog show and the beautiful things at the yeah. plant fair. Yeah, perfect and weekend. And the auction. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I like to have people at the auction. And have a nice meal somewhere. Yeah. And your YouTube, which yeah. you did recently come and film me. So if anyone yeah. wants to have a look at my garden. Oh, yes, yes. Virginia's garden is up on YouTube and it's been doing really well, Virginia, I have to say. We've had lots of lots of watches on it. So, so the address is? All right. If you want to find the YouTube channel and you haven't already, it's called The Haughty Culturalists. So it's horticulturalists with a dash between the haughty and the culturalists. And it's not spelt H-A-U-T-I. It's just <laughs> spelt as haughty culturalists. Uh, so you just type that into YouTube. The YouTube channel should come up and then you can subscribe. Um, and if you press the alert button, it'll remind you every week when the videos come up because we do one every Friday um, and have been doing now for over two years. So, And, of course, the other one that you might want to have a look at is Johnny at Capital A Gardening because Craig from Gentiana, who's also one of our regulars, often mm. appears on that. So there are two excellent YouTubes for people yeah. to look at. And there's, you know, some people doing some really interesting stuff on YouTube in this country. So, Which is good. Yeah. So it's more applicable, I guess, to our own conditions and our own seasonal things. Well, it's funny. I have a lot of American subscribers on our YouTube channel. And when we do something about autumn leaves, I think... They're just heading into spring. This is going to be a bit surreal for them. But anyhow. The one that gets me is we have our mail order business, Dyes Dyes Delightful Plants, our second biggest city in the world, Chicago. Mm -hmm. I can't quite work out why we get so many hits from Chicago unless there's some sort of massage bar or something. Because why nobody can buy anything? Well, we've got got 
a list, we've got listeners in America, we've got listeners mm. in Britain, we've got, yeah. and we've got a lot of listeners from the north now. Yeah. Well, and, and, and they, cause they all, of good course, morning, evening to our British listener that rings in regularly. Yes, it's yes, fantastic yes. to hear from her. From Birmingham. Yes. Birmingham. <laughs> yes absolutely. Uh, Talking about narrow roads. I drove a semi-trailer around the UK. They got narrow roads. <laughs> they do indeed. <laughs> yeah, yes. And one of our other very regulars is in Minnesota. Yeah. So right. good morning to him mm. as well. Now we have another call on the line, and this is Miriam from Croydon. Good morning, Miriam. Good morning. Um, we have a mountain of mulch from the cypress pine that was taken down. I'm just wondering if we use it, whether... It changes the pH of the soil because, for example, if I know you, we put pine needles on acid-loving plants. Yeah. If you use it as a mulch, it won't do any harm. Okay. Um, uh, it may eventually make the soil slightly more acidic, um, but the vast majority of plants like a slightly acidic soil anyway. There's not actually that many plants that prefer an alkaline soil. Yeah, there's a lot of plants that would actually grow much better in acidic soil. Yeah, if you, exactly. If you match so, what they need. But the trick is people worry about it drawing down nitrogen and all sorts of other things when they put down mulches over the garden. As long as you're not digging them in... Mm. They do exactly what happens in nature. Things fall to the ground, they, they rot at ground level, and then they become humus and then they work their way down into the soil. So use it. Don't waste it. I mean, I see my garden as a net green waste importer is the way I call myself mm. uh, because I not only don't let anything out of the place, anything that's organic, it goes back into the garden in some form or another, but I also bring stuff in to, to add to that. So I'll bring in extra mulch from somewhere or buy manure or I'll buy other things to in, incorporate into my soils. But most of the time after soil's been prepared, I just lay the next material on the top and just let it work its way down in, and it's perfectly fine. And if it's a bit of, too acidic, it'll just kill all the little weeds trying to grow. Yeah, well, there's that as well. That's what you want to so, do. Yeah, so don't be <laughs> frightened to use it. Uh, but you hear all sorts of things about anything conifery being, you know, sort of potentially too acid or anything that's eucalyptusy, full of resins and things that are going to kill your plants. And I don't know, I've been putting down heavy mulches of all those sorts of materials for the last 25, 30 years, and my garden's fine. And yeah. Craig yes, would say exactly you. the same. He puts down exactly the same stuff. The only thing is make sure you well water the ground. Yeah, you need you put, moist soil under Before it. you put the mulch on top. Yeah. But okay, just, it sounds like a good job for tomorrow then. Yeah, yeah, get out there and spread the mulch around. Yeah, especially after today's rain would yeah. be good. Yes, that's right. Well, thank you. That's very helpful. Appreciate it. Thank you, Miriam. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. What interests me, Stephen, is just imagine your property... Uh, 50 years ago, and that's the soil now, if you analyse the difference, would be phenomenal. Actually, Clive, you can tell because my next-door neighbour has done nothing to the ground there Mm. and a couple of times I've taken sneaky video over the fence (laughs) um, and he cuts the tops off the odd dandelion and tussock grass that comes up with his victor um, and in the summer you get clouds of dust that Mm. come up um, it's got virtually no topsoil at all, and that's actually what I started with. So I worked my way through the whole garden, and I 
didn't do it in a hurry and I didn't do it with mechanical machinery. I've got the bad back to prove it. Mm. Um, uh, it was all hand done and I just keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, in fact, we just did a story on soil preparation recently on how I did it in my garden. And when you see what next door's like, it quite literally is a grey smudge, the yeah. top soil, and it's got a few scruffy old messmate gums and in the spring the occasional um, sundew comes up. Um not on their plot, plot, but a couple of plots down, there's an odd native orchid mm. that comes up. Uh, but hardly even any, well, you don't get any blackberries, you don't get any thistles, you don't get any oh, dockweeds. That must be bad soil. You, you, you don't get any of that stuff uh, because there's just no fertility there. Mm. And um, so it takes time, uh, but... I can't leave where I am now. I've invested far too much time and energy into creating soil. So I'm stuck there no matter, no matter what. And uh, and I just keep doing it. The other day I was out there putting compost that I'd made myself over one of the beds, uh, knowing full well that I cold compost so there'll be weed seeds in it. So then I put coffee grounds over the top of that that I get from the local cafe. And I've been cleaning up my bamboo hedges recently and putting that through the shredder. And so the mulch went down, uh, which was chomped up bamboo. All good stuff. Yeah, and all of it is going to help. I have got a text for people. Well, it's not a text, sorry. It's an email from Lisa, Lisa Gormley. I'm hoping team can help with repotting my auriculars. I have two and I need to repot them as I believe they are now not in suitable potting mix. I've done some web searching and I'm having trouble finding a good Australian information. The UK information says to use soil-based com- compost, John Innes number two, and grit, but we don't have soil-based composts and all my learning has taught me we don't use garden soil in pots. So what should I do? Uh, just use a good quality top-of-the-range potting mix should be fine. And as far as grit's concerned, I mean, it's just sort of sharpish sand. Well, this, this silly more this black. Oh, the grit's a little bit different than the sand. It's a, mm. It's got a lot of calcium and magnesium in it. Yeah. I know Vasilius is selling this black grit, which helps it out. Yeah. But just at the top of the range potting mix, and all you need to decide is how much drainage you want. Yeah. And then basically... Because yeah, auriculars aren't very... aren't seriously specific about their soil type needs. But you do need to pot them on, because I don't know whether... This is a problem everywhere, but certainly up around our area, where we get those rotten yellow root aphids... And if something sits in a pot long enough, the root aphids find their way in and your auriculars or primulas or any of that other that sort of group of plants, you can wonder why they're looking a bit weird and you can lift, grab the leaves and the whole root oh. system's gone from underneath it. Yeah. And so you do have to watch out for yellow root aphids in lots of areas. It's certainly endemic at Mount Macedon. Uh, it's certainly an issue in the Dandenongs as well. Um, and cleaning the roots and repotting them on a regular basis is one way of trying to get around the root aphid problem. I would have thought the biggest problem with your auriculars is actually getting them through the hot summers. Yeah, well, that is another issue, yes, Mm. but that's got nothing to do with potting them, of course. Well, it would actually, because if your potting mix is old, it's actually lost its structure. Yeah. And it becomes more muddy and, and doesn't do, hold the mixture of water and air you need over the summer. Yeah, exactly. So now's an excellent time to repot <coughs> it. There's still a bit of warmth in the air. The plant will settle down. Its roots will start to grow. Mm. So by the time the hot summer comes, the roots are out around the pot. It's happy. It's chirpy. It's got fresh food, fresh yeah. air, fresh material. And yeah, just any good quality potting mix. Yeah. And they don't do that in the UK. In Europe, they originally all peat based, and now they're peat and dirt. They don't have the pine bark based bark mixes that we have in Australia. Yeah. And of course, they're desperate to stop using the peat. Yeah. For obvious reasons, because yeah. they've been just digging them up like there's no tomorrow and it's the wrong thing to do. Lisa from Bendigo, I hope that has helped. 
Now, I have got something I would like to do now, which is open garden scheme next week, is Myers Creek in Myers Creek Road in Talangi. So another one that's mm. in our area, although no. Talangi is a bit further from us, but we can, we, Clive and I can both see Talangi yeah, from our gardens. It's not too long a drive. So there's an open garden in Talangi. It's a beautiful garden with lots of cool climate deciduous trees, kitchen gardens, views. They have coffee, wine tasting, paintings, all sorts of things happening. It's $10 and $8 for students. You can find it on Try Booking and all you can pay on the day. And we have got one free ticket for two to go to this Myers Creek Road Talangi Garden. So ring in on 94190155 and talk to Susie if you are hoping to go to uh, get a free ticket for Myers Creek. And if you miss out on that ticket, it's still worth visiting. And that gives us a fourth thing to yeah, be doing only, in our oh, area goodness. this weekend. 25 minute drive from our place. So. You need a long weekend, but we're, having not, we're not having one this weekend. No, no. Deary me. It's no. following weekend. There's one soon enough, but yes, not yeah. yet. Yeah, so, and, and you have to go up past Allowan Gardens on the way to Tulangi too. Which is... Absolutely, and Allowan Gardens is an abs- it's a good nursery, but a fabulous garden. It's, it's world standard. Absolutely. And I've known John since he first had the dream of building that place, mm. and he, he's built what he dreamed to build, which is just amazing. He and Prue, God, they work hard. And mm. that's just outside right of Yarra Glen. Of Yarra Glen, yeah. yeah. On, the, on the road. Up to Tulangi. Mm. Yes. Yeah, well, there you go. Oh, there's too many, too many things to do and not enough time to do it all. That's right. And then we're getting older and there's even less time to do even more things. <laughs> yeah. oh, and we have another question. Mm-hmm. Can we put expired potting mix in the compost or should we dig it into the garden? Yes, to both. Yes. You can go either way. But um, what, what, why is it expired? Is it expired because it's a use-by date on it? Or no, 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 no. You've it's used it. You've been in the pot potting in the ga- garden. Garden's yeah. best for it, really. Yeah, well, I have a lot of it having a nursery, yeah. and it's been one of the major components that I have used over the last 30 Ooh. years to improve my garden soil uh, because humus materials rot down, turn into, in, into humus, uh, which is a sort of a black liquid, and it slowly leaches through the soil, so it disappears, mm. so you've got to keep topping it up all the time. But the spent potting mix has got coarse sand in it and lots of other more permanent materials and that's been a great asset to me to um, add to the garden because every time I repot you take the top of the Mm -hmm. potting mix off you scrunch out the bottom of the roots a little bit Um, so there's always buckets of what I call spent potting mix Mm -hmm. that I have sitting aside I take them home I'll use some of them on the compost heap if I need something to push it down a bit and, Mm -hmm. uh, and help with the rotting down process otherwise it goes straight into the garden beds. Yes, we, I we, put mine in the in the compost, but then we, I don't have nearly as much as you. We have metres and metres of it because our propagation mix when we've used it, and not all our plants survive, so we end up with big piles of it. Mm-hmm. What you have to be very careful as a larger user of it is if you make big beds and then you decide to burn off above it, Oops! it, it will burn for months <laughs> and months. It just it's gets sort of like a coal, coal pit <laughs> fire. It's exactly like that, and, and we've been burning off um, oh, a few months ago before the burn-offs, it's mm-hmm. only be late spring, and in the middle of the night, all these fire trucks turn up because it was about two days after we put, it, we put the fire out. You'd thought. <laughs> it started smoldering and it's all dead. It got up inside this old dead tree. Oh, goodness. <laughs> about 1 a.m. And our stupid dog, guard dog was on our bed sound asleep. Oh, of course <laughs> it was. You know, there's three fire trucks, sirens and everything, and he didn't even move. <laughs> You uh-huh. said guard dog, I assume, with inverted commas around it. Oh, it barks at me when I come home. <laughs> oh, goodness me. <sighs> but he will be at the at the dog dog show. Our yeah. granddaughter's going to try and train him to walk and 
on oh, a leash. Oh, this will be interesting. Yeah, it will yeah. be. I, With not enough time. No. Please advise... On transferring plug-grown small plant to slightly larger pot with pine bark-based potting mix from Tina. So she obviously needs to pot up something that's We'd in. only do half a million a year of that. Yeah, you must have some <laughs> knowledge about potting on plugs. It's really simple. A good quality potting mix, you put it in the pot, you create a hole about the size of the plug, make sure both are moist, drop the plug in, um, smooth it all out and water in well. If you've got some liquid seaweed-based Fertiliser tonic, put that on as well, and it's fine. Yeah, yeah. It's not a mystery moving something from a plug into a pot. No. Usually, and just having, make sure they're both moist. Yes, and having some seaweed mix in your water is always a good idea. Yeah, yeah it's great. Mm. Well, I hope that helped. We don't. Oh, I hope that helped, Tina. And somebody has said next weekend the Australian Blant and Book Sale is on in Eltham. Yes, that's that's because that means Vaughan's can't come to our place either. So because he's there, uh, so Vaughan's not coming. No, because he's at that one. That's his biggest one for the year. Uh, so, yeah, goodness me! I think, autumn I think, in the year of autumn in Melbourne. It's just yeah, stunning. It's madness, isn't it? But anyhow, yeah. it's fun. And speaking autumnal too, I I want to talk about some autumn coloured leaves shortly too. When, do when, so absolutely immediately, Steve. You think? Yes. All right. Well, I'm going to do some dad joking here because I have great expectations of what I'm about to talk about. Uh, yeah. All right, Clive. Um, <laughs> all these plants I brought along are actually in the grape family, so they're all related to the commercial grape, um, which is the uninteresting larval stage of wine. Do you know I've, I've seen the world's Oldest living grapevine. Mm. It's in Where? it's in um, Maribor and Slovenia. Mm. So over two and a half thousand years old, and probably still producing bloody grapes. Oh, vitis type. No, it's it's, it's a species. Oh, form. yeah. It took the Slovenians a long time to convince the French that it was a real thing. Mm. So, and the French can be very hard. And to they've conf- got a cutting in, sometimes. Um, they've oh. got a cutting grind in Seville. Oh, oh how, that's fabulous. Yes. Mm. All right. Well, get back to my grapevines. Um, the most commonly available ornamental grape uh, is a form of Vitus vinifera, mm. um, but it's sterile, so it doesn't produce grapes. Uh, and it actually does have a cultivar name, but most of the nurseries just sell it as ornamental grape Vitus vinifera. Uh, it's actually Ganzen Glory is mm. its cultivar name. I spent a lot of time and a lot of effort trying to find the name because I knew it must have one, uh, but none of the labelling anywhere ever mentions mm. its cultivar name. And it's a fabulous climber. I mean, really, it's tough, it's quick-growing, it has the most fabulous autumn foliage. Mine's just starting to, well, it's burgundy at the moment, but it'll go even more scarlet later. Um, And I've got it growing across the front of a carport next to the nursery, and it's whipped itself up through a dogwood, uh, big cornice capitata, Mm. and the capitata's getting its fruit forming on at the moment, uh, and it's got all these red leaves of the vitus through it, and it is just the most fabulous plant. Um, And I'm... You know, I'm regularly uh, encouraging people to use it. The only downside with any of these grapevine family things is if you put them up on a pergola and you have lots of possums, you generally don't have a lot of grapevine uh, because they tend to like the ornamental grapes, uh, unfortunately. Uh, But Vitus vinifragans and Glory is a beautiful, if reasonably ubiquitous it's commonly available it's grown around the traps but certainly well worthwhile having and it will color well in melbourne you don't have to have the chilly nights to color it up well so it's a really really good vine but 
taking it to a slightly bigger, greater level is Vitus coignetii, and my Latinized French isn't great, so I might not have pronounced that quite how it should be. Don't know that one. Yeah, well, Vitus, uh, Vitus coignetii is the Chinese um, glory vine, and the leaf I've brought in is actually a small one. The leaves can get huge. Um, the size he's making is bigger than a hat, two yeah, hands. Yeah, about the size of my head. Mm. Um, That's huge. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Clive. Uh, <laughs> you opened yourself to that Yeah, one. <laughs> I did open myself up for that. I should have known better with you here. Um, now, the difference between Gans and Glory and Vitus cognetii, again, Vitus cognetii tends to be sterile because you need a cross-pollinator for it to actually produce mm. grapes, so you're not going to have messy grapes dropping on your terrazzo paving or whatever. Um, and you get these huge leaves, and the leaves are much more heavily veined and textured than the classical grapevine. Uh, I don't think it would make good dolmatis. I think it's a bit on the tough side. No. Uh, but the thing I love about it, apart from its great big fabulous leaves, is that... It tends to have slightly different colours throughout the plant depending on how much sun that mm. part of the plant gets. The normal ornamental grape tends to go scarlet more or less throughout. All right. This one, though, back in the in the centre of the plant will go yellow and then as it comes towards the sun more, it'll go through oranges and then it'll go into scarlets and then it'll go into dark burgundies. So you have this whole gamut of colours through that, the one that vine. That does sound wonderful. Oh, it's a beautiful, beautiful vine. It's not as drought tolerant as the normal grapevine, so it needs a little more irritation irrigating in warm areas. Uh, it's certainly vigorous. In the wild, it can grow to 70 metres. Um, mm. So it could cover almost anything you could ever want to cover, I would have thought, unless you live in Eureka Tower. Um, and so it would be a fantastic climber over big pergolas along a big fence or whatever. Have something structurally solid to grow it on because it's big. It might. I have got... In part of my garden, I had to chop down some huge pine trees originally and I made two seats and a mm. table from the chopped mm. down pine trees. Well, they've got borer, so they're completely rotten and oh, unseatable, yes. but too big to get rid of. That would be perfect. Yeah, over yeah, yeah, just throw it over the top yeah. and let them take it over. Um, so, yes, so Vitus coignetii. And the others I've got are in the grape family, but they're not vituses as such, but they're in the same family. And one that I have an absolute passion for is uh, commonly known as the silver vein creeper uh, or Chinese Virginia creeper, um, Parthenocissus henriana. Um, and I love it. Uh, it's one of the few ornamental vines that colour in the autumn in shade. So if you want red leaves in the shade, this is the only plant I know of that will do it. If you plant Boston Ivy or Virginia Creeper or any of those others into the shade, they'll go soft yellows and apricots and shed. They won't get scarlet. Henriana will. And if it's growing in the shade, this plant I bought in today was actually out in the full sun, so it hasn't got the – normally the silver vein creeper has a, a white vein down the middle of the leaf, uh, which it only has in the shade. Put it out in the sun, it loses the white vein. If it's got the white vein in it and it turns in the autumn, the white vein stays white. So you've got this scarlet vine with white veins through the leaves, which is just breathtaking. So you've explained why my two Virginia creepers, because obviously with a name like Virginia, I have to mm. buy these. Yeah, well, of course you have. Mm. I've got two Virginia creepers and neither of them which colour. Mm. But it's because they're in too much shade. Yeah, but if it had been this one, Parthenosis henriana, it will colour. Um, and the other thing I love about it, and Virginia creeper 
is the same in, in this particular aspect, is that they tend to grow up things and they run along things and then they beautifully dangle. I love the dangling. They don't mm. end up as an unstuffed mattress up on the top of yeah. things like a lot of climbers can. Um, so Virginia creepers and the silver vein creeper have this fabulous dangly habit. So for over a pergola or an arch or up through a tree where it can hang off the branches of a tree, it looks stunning. Or around well, the window. Exactly yeah. what I was going to say, Clive. It's I had, fabulous around had it the around window. Our kitchen window. And I had this beautiful vanilla vine creeping all around the kitchen mm. window. Di decided the creeper had to come off the window. That summer, the Virginia, the vanilla had been died. It just got hit by the sun. Mm. But yes. yeah, it was fantastic because in spring, in winter, all the leaves go and you've got the, Get sun the summer beating. sun. That's yeah. exactly yeah. if you're facing and, west, it's perfect. And the other thing about this one, Henriana, is the back of the leaves, and that's what you're going to look at if you're looking out a window is going to be the back of the leaves because the leaves all face mm. outwards. The back of the leaves on this often have quite a dark burgundy staining in the summer foliage. So you're looking at the burgundy stained back of the leaves. So it's got huge mm. assets for a garden. I think it's just the most fabulous thing. It will grow in full sun, but you'll have a green leaf that grows bright scarlet in the autumn. Plant it in the shade and you'll have a green leaf with white veins. And you'll still get the burgundy on the back of the leaf, it seems, no matter whether it's in sun or shade, and it dangles. Mm. So what more could you want? It does sound rather good. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, We've got any more calls coming? I've got one more plant if you – or we can save it. It doesn't matter. No, no, far away. All right. Oh, Um, yes. This one is another plant in the grapevine family, and it's in a genus called Ampelopsis. We we promoted this 25 years ago as the alphabet plant. Yeah. Ampelopsis brevi pedunculata maxima wissii elegans. Yes, exactly. Yes, it covers (laughs) almost the whole thing. Um, Now, this variegated form, it gets white marbling all through the leaves. It has pink tendrils. Uh, In the autumn, uh, it can have clusters of beautiful little porcelain berries on it that are in purple and blue Blue, and violet and green and sometimes they're spotted like bird's eggs. Uh, So you get beautiful berries on it as well. The green leaf form actually tends to fruit better than the variegated one, I find. Uh, But the variegated one's really good because it's not outrageously vigorous. It's fairly vigorous, but it's it's controllable. Yeah, yeah, and and, and sort of not a big outrageous. And so whereabouts would you grow it? Well, it'll grow in sun or semi-shade. Uh, it fruits better in the sun. Uh, its foliage holds uh, better colour in semi-shade. Um, it doesn't burn, though, in the no, sun. No, it doesn't seem to burn. Uh, and um, it would make a lovely plant just up a pillar on a veranda post or on a, a, a tripod or obelisk in the garden. Um, you, you don't need a hugely big thing to grow it on. We had them in 2002 when we did our first garden show at Mifkus. We had some big cones of those, mm. about five, five, five six foot high cones, put in a big pot and just growing mm. wrap around the cone. Beautiful plant, mm. stunning colour. I think it is a beautiful plant, and I, it's it's variegation gives it a real brightness. Yeah, because yeah. it's got it's almost more white than green. Yeah. It doesn't it look. It's not a sick looking variegation. It's a, yeah. it's a light energetic variegation. There are some variegated plants that should have been composted. Yeah. I have to say, as much as I quite like variegation, yeah. uh, there are some sort of wussy things out there that should never have and been. And Stephen, propagated. the other thing that's wonderful about that plant is when you've got those mm. al- almost um, bright pale blue berries. Yeah. It's, they're just fabulous. Oh, the berries on this plant are fantastic. 
absolutely fantastic. I have to say, though, on the green-leafed one, the berries also stand out better than they do on the variegated one because the variegated one's so hectic to start with. Yes. Oh, yes. The berries tend to disappear, but the green-leafed one, the berries really stand out on. If you've got a large property, you can put that on a bank anywhere and it'll just cover the bank and yeah. it just, it just gives mm. stunning Fabulous colour. plant. So, yeah, so Ampelopsis brevipeduncularis. I'm not sure that Maxima oxiana is actually in its name anymore. I think oh. it's had a bit of a name I change. I cultivar was Maximusio elegans. Was no, it's, no, just elegans. Oh, well, yeah, well so. it, it's enough of a name anyway. I yeah, think. well, it is, I, I have to say. Uh, but there is still some debate over its name, so I, I won't go into any uh, long debate about it. But uh, Elegans is, uh, is the cultivar, and it really is a very, very useful plant in the grapevine family. So that was my theme this morning, basically. Uh, and we've got a propagation call, ooh. which is exciting. We've got Sue from Mount Evelyn. Hi, Sue. Hi, Jenna. How are you? Excellent, darling. Yes, look, I'm ringing in. I'm actually sitting in my bedroom watching all the spine bills and thorn bills on all the salvias and things like that that are in the garden at the moment. Mm-hmm. But just something interesting that actually happened. I was in the op shop, as I'm always in the op shop, so I did the op shop or in the garden, and um, got onto a conversation with this old lady who grows things and uh, Rosie who was down there as a horticulturalist who has these things and I was talking about the plant fair um, on on the weekend and um, to be able to go there and get things that aren't sold in your normal nursery. Anyway, this lady said, oh, I would love love one of those plants and I said, how long are you here for? And she said, an hour and a half. So I came back because I actually grow plants from home took the mammostad and, and, and um, cuttings of other sort of things, but we got onto the subject too of it's really important having these plant fairs and people thinking about growing plants for all the, the seasons, not just for the beauty, but also to keep the habitat in our gardens for your bees, your blue-banded bees, your native bees and your spinebills. And a lot of the plants that you actually want to buy, you're going to get up at the plant fair. Yes. Um, and the, the other thing is buying things, a lot of the things. When I buy plants, I'm always actually looking at um, the beauty. You might spend the money on the plant, but if you can divide it and then share it with other people, it's actually worth the investment of going, meeting people, talking to people. Um, yeah, yeah. Because I'm talking to the people in the nursery that it quite, seems to be quite everywhere at the moment, Clive. It is. It is. As I said, I believe it's the um, it's the economy not settling down. Once the economy yeah. settles down, footy season's got up in the full swing. People start getting back into the plants. Yeah. And they need to get out there and think about that because uh, if people stop planting plants, you're going to stop your bees, you're going to stop your birds. Um, you know, our oxygen level changes. Um, you need it all, especially, you know, with cars and stuff like that. You, if everybody plants even three native plants in their garden, they're actually going to get rid of the emissions just from their one vehicle. And I don't think a lot of people realise just how important it is to keep keep our gardens going. And there's so many, um, you know, talking about Ben's plants and and the people that attend the plant fair, there's a lot of plants on the market that are drought tolerant that you don't have to water. I've, I've hardly put any water onto my garden. We've had such a dry summer, you and fi- you probably had the same. So you'd find that the majority of plants in Melbourne 
don't need much watering. I always say a maximum of four litres per square metre per week for about 10 weeks of the year. That's all you need yep. to water in Melbourne. Yeah. I reckon I've got the high, except for the pots, because I've got only about uh, 200 pots scattered, <laughs> yes. only because there's a lot of plants that I love and because, mainly because it gets wet where I am in winter and I've got the heavy clay, then I opt out for putting, um, you know, your plants in pots. and then But you can move your pots around. And if you've got a bare spot, you can end up putting it in there and... I collect chairs off the hard rubbish and then put the pots on top of the chairs. So, um, yeah. That would, be, it's, be... that would be fascinating. So many years ago, Don and I went to visit an alpine nursery up at Mount Buller. Yep. Uh, Sue, I think her name was, no, Jill, Jill Dawson. And she'd be collecting ski boots. And her garden was full of ski boots full of plants. Yep. <laughs> I've got more into anything, Clyde. That sounds right you know, up your I, alley, Sue. Yeah, well, Jen knows on my Facebook, and if Stephen looks at it, I'm always posting mm. ideas of all these different things that you can actually plant in. I don't think I've, I've probably bought half a dozen pots in my life because I collect everything off the hard rubbish. Um, even things like Virginia's garden, things that are going to stop the rabbits from eating, you can put your. Um, old hanging baskets upside down and you find mountains of them, don't you, Jin, on I'm the hard I'm always rubbish. looking for old hanging baskets to stop you the know, rabbits. When Jin visited me last time, he says, I'll come to visit you, not come home with more plants. But I see that's the beauty. I go and buy more plants. And when I get a plant, I actually take cuttings off it before I actually plant it, just in case I'm going to lose it. So that's another good thing that people can think about. Cut the flowers off as much as people don't like it. Um, let you, let the plant have a nice shape and put some put some cuttings down just in case it is a new plant that you don't know its conditions, and then you've got a backup to it as well. So Thanks, looking so forward to great ideas. And look, we'll catch up with you next weekend. It'd be great to see. Yeah, you. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it, Clive, and um, another friend of mine that I got. See, I got to know a lot of people off our buy nothing site where. She came and got pots from me. I've got cuttings out of her garden and everybody shares. But people are so excited about, uh, you know, all the things that they have up there. I think the plant fair's awesome. Thanks, Sue. Take yeah, care. really, really good. Checks in the mail. Yeah. <laughs> and I love the clip on Virginia's garden, Stephen, too. Yeah, good. I watched that on. Yeah, really good. Oh, good. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. To, yeah, I'll have to get you some pistunias going. I'm going to share that secret how to do that. Yeah, well. To be out in the industry. Yes, if you get some more going, Sue, I'd be interested in some. I know Matthew's desperate to have one. Um, yeah. He really, uh, God knows where he's going to keep it in his um, Carlton Terrace garden that he's going to have when he finishes renovating his well, house. Well, you know what? They grow damn good in a pot, I can tell you, because oh, well. we've had them as stock material in 30-centimetre um, pots. All right, yeah. Not, you know, so even if, if you haven't got the spot, the only reason I lost mine was when we had that big storm in Mount Evelyn. It was so windy that it actually twisted the trunk and I had it in a fairly protected area. <clears throat> I think the key to that one is they need, if you put it in a garden environment, in an area that's cold, you need to have good airflow around it, otherwise it tends to go black. So I have to raise Virginia's bassoonia now to get you. Well, hers was looking stunning when Matthew and I were up there filming. It was just looking fabulous. Do you know what I love about it is that the flowering time, I mean, you're looking at it for at least three months and it's flowering over Christmas. 
which is beautiful. So you can even use the flowers hold up quite well in um, a vase as well. Mm-hmm. That, that's one plant that I've got to get again into my garden because it was just beautiful. Yeah, great plant. Thanks, yeah. Susie. See you Thanks, on the weekend. Sue. Thanks, bye. Bye, bye Susie. Yes, that persoonia is a very... Which persoonia is it? Pinifolia. I remember we tried propagating that in the mid-90s. Mm. The cuttings lasted two years. Yeah, without roots on. Yeah. <laughs> Sue has two... the secret. She knows how to do them. Sue, was... Sue can do it and virtually nobody else can. Yeah, yeah oh. she seems to have the knack with it. So, mm. yes, she she could become an under-the-counter supplier, I think. But, so, uh... Sometimes what we don't do in our industry is don't understand that actually sometimes propagation is individually based. Like we have blue eyes and brown mm. eyes. There's some... Yes. That individual propagates better than that individual. Yeah. And we just don't track that. Mm. Now, I've got a a long text. Oh, right. So I'll read this to you. It's from Bethany in Nunawadding. Hi, champions. I have a courtyard garden that's less than 12 months old. I'm trying to find a plant for a tricky spot that is on the south side of a 1.7 capped picket fence, mostly shaded, but direct sun in summer. I'm wanting something in a a lighter shade to bring some bright to the dark side of the fence. Ideally, 50 centimetres to a metre in height and about 50 centimetres wide. And I'm happy to do the maintenance. I have got a candlelight hydrangeas in a similar spot, but it gets more shade. I want to limit my use of water-thirsty plants. I think a camellia kind of trellis espalier to the fence could work or pruned into a pillar, but I'd really value some other ideas. Schizophragma. Schizophragma. Mm, on the fence. It'll grow in full shade and full sun. Mm. And doesn't we, we, we never water ours on the back of the toilet block at the nursery. It just grows Could, up. And the, the, the back of the toilet block faces south. Then when it hits the top, it's northwest with a full sun on it. Could you spell Schizophragma? Yeah, he probably could. S C H. Yeah, <laughs> yes, I can. Yeah, S C H I Z O P H R A G M A. It's basically a hydrangea in yeah. a way. Yeah, yeah. So they're they're a hydrangea group, and they're a lovely climber. And you're yeah. right, they would work. I was going to say even the um, ampelopsis I bought in would yeah. work. The variegated ampelopsis yeah. would work, and it's really light and airy, so it would bring light colour in. Yeah. And they're certainly not water hungry. No. Um, so if you can get the variegated ampelopsis called elegans. Uh, that would certainly be a nice climber mm. on the fence. Um, the problem you have if you've got a spot that gets no sun most of the year, but then only, but then gets full sun on it in the middle of summer, and that hot sun, and that, and if it's the hot sun, it can be a difficult thing to mm. deal with. I've, I've got oodles of plants for full shade. Mm. Uh, and then there's oodles of plants that like to be out in full sun, but that sort of going between the two can be a bit iffy uh, to find things that would work. There's another uh, hydrangea that's very hard to get because we don't grow it anymore. It's hydrangea formosana. Mm. It'll grow in that same condition. And yeah. It has a long marijuana-type, like long, narrow, serrated leaf. That would grow well in those conditions if you can find it. Yeah, yeah that's the problem. Some of these plants, they just aren't out there. Um I'm just I think to... the camellia is not a bad idea. Yeah, well, certainly a Sasangua camellia, you can do far worse. Mm. Um, although the only issue with them is that most of them are quite dark green. Uh, yes. I mean, they'll bring light in when they're in colour in yeah. flower, but they're going to be quite dark and sombre. But if she went foliage. for one of the ones with the, um, the smaller leaves, mm. like the that have been bred from camellia tsai, yeah. that might be a bit better. Yeah. So it's yeah. Not so as heavy. yeah. So a camellia could could be uh, an option. Um, the ampelopsis, I think, is an excellent mm, idea. Mm. Yeah. Now the only other thing we didn't find out from her is whether the she talks about 
you know, 50 centimetres by 50 centimetres or whatever. Uh, or, um, but is it a long, narrow bed that we're planting into? Or is so it, it's a long capped picket fence. Yeah, yeah. it's along a long fence. So if she's growing along the fence... Yeah, well, I was going to say, if it's got a, uh, a paved area in front of it so there's nowhere for a plant to move sideways or move forward, if it's trapped within a bed, uh, <laughs> a plant that could look fantastic at suckers uh, is Clerodendron bungii. It just has single upright canes that stick up and it gets these big heads of pink flowers on it in high summer that are beautifully perfumed. Uh, it has mid-green leaves with a slightly burgundy reverse uh, and it suckers madly, but it would work along the bed and it, and it doesn't grow so thick as to swamp anything that it grows with. So the suckers could come up through something else or around on the other side of something else and it wouldn't do any harm. And you can chop it off at the socks in the winter and treat it mm-hmm. like a perennial and then every summer it will come up and it has quite big leaves serrated around the edges and then these big heads of pink flowers on it. It's lovely and it would and grow. If it came to the plant fair, I could guarantee 100% you'd find at least half a dozen different plants. Oh, undoubtedly. Because we've got so many different growers with so much knowledge over so many different types of plant, if you couldn't find some, something to go in there, yeah, I'd be blo- I'd be surprised. Yeah, so would I. So yeah, yeah. so there's a couple of ideas at least to, yeah. to get you stimulated. And I agree with Clive. If you came up to the plant fair, uh, I'm confident that you'd find some growers doing something interesting. Well, that... none of none of Wadding's not too far. No, 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 on the right side of Melbourne. So yeah. be well worth the day trip. Well, I hope that's been useful. Now we have another one. You mentioned Vasily's black grit. I'm wondering how it improves soil and plant growth, please. Would it help inner-city sandy soil? I beef mine up with compost, blood and bone, but hydrangeas and hellebores wilt in the summer. No amount of sea soil improves the condition for more than a few days. Can only grow hydrangeas in pots. Thank you. Well, the hellebores will be wilting because their roots are getting too hot. That's, that's often a problem. Mm. Um, some hellebores are more tolerant of that and some are less tolerant of the heat on the roots. His black grit, there's another company also selling it under another name and it's high calcium magnesium and other minerals which are just very good for making overall plant strength it's not a fertilizer it just helps build the strength if you're in a sandy soil compost compost compost, compost. Mm. yeah yeah yes if you're desperate to grow hellebores try helleborus uh, arcutifolius that used to be helleborus corsicus mm. it's much more heat tolerant gets big heads of lime green flowers on it and it has really wonderful gray spiky looking mm. leaves the foliage is beautiful the problem with a lot of the cultivars and we have all our our gold collection are bred in northern germany and they're bred to try and flower before Christmas in the Northern Hemisphere. So they're very yeah, icebreaker max. That's telling you it, mm. it likes it cold. Yeah. And yeah. they do struggle with hot roots. Yeah. So the Corsican hellebore could be a possibility. It doesn't look quite like the garden hybrid hellebore, but uh, it's winter flowering, its foliage is fantastic, um, and it will grow in much drier conditions. And the high danger quirker foliage comes from northeast United States where it does get up to the high 30s in summer and cold in winter, mm. it should grow in those conditions. We've got it out in the paddock at Wandon. So that's the oak leaf. Yeah, the oak leaf hydrangea would be a good old a hydrangea yeah. alternative if you're interested in those groups of plants still in those sorts of conditions. The other one is to move to a different sort of plant. Mm. Yes, well, yeah. Or I thought you were going to say move to another suburb. <laughs> <laughs> I was taking it to the extreme yeah, there yeah. in my head. Uh, it's like when people say, how do you get rid of Oxalis? And I tell them, put a sale for sale sign up out the front. Um, <laughs> mm. And, yeah, just move on. <laughs> All right. Now, can we propagate climbing hydrangeas? John wants to know if we can propagate climbing hydrangeas. Look, you hydrangeas. can, but the easiest way from a, from a home gardener's perspective is layering. 
So if you've just got a low branch, pin it down to the ground, cover it with some soil with the tip sticking out, it will make roots. Within 12 months, you're about to cut it off yeah. and start a new plant. Which that, is also how I do my clematis. That, that is, um, depending on if you mean the, the generic term for climbing hydrangea, which includes, includes decamerias mm. and schizophragmas, they're not quite so easy to layer. Mm. A decameria can be quite hard to, to propagate. Yeah. Whereas and a couple of the hydrangea petiolaris strike well, and there's other ones that don't strike so mm. well. So it depends exactly which species. Yeah. But generally yeah. speaking, if people are saying Lone. climbing hydrangea, they're probably talking PDLRs because yeah. it's the most commonly available one. Um, and it will Just often layer it. itself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, If a branch sort of comes out and it hasn't got the wall to go up, uh, it will run across the ground and it'll root down as it goes. Yeah. Which my Virginia creeper has been doing everywhere. Yeah, mm. well, they do. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. An easy way to get some free plants. But I don't find the clematis does it as often. You have to be more... You've got to be a bit more assiduous about it. It doesn't do it all on its own so easily, so it needs a little bit more sort of effort put in. But I think layering is a very good way to try and oh. propagate things. Look, it's, it's not only a good it's, – it's a good way in lots of ways because it's, um, it, you don't need any special equipment, so you don't have to have greenhouses and misspray systems and bottom heat and all that. And the other thing too is although it can be a bit slower to get a plant and you're not going to get as many plants as a commercial grower might want, but you probably don't need that many plants. Um, the other good thing about layering is, of course, the plant's growing in situ. It's, it's toughened up. It's hardy. When you separate it from the parent plant, you don't have to wean it or anything like that because it hasn't been through greenhouses and other mm. things. So you've got an already weaned and ready-to-go plant uh, from your layering. We layer some of our plants commercially. Mm. Yeah. It's a good way of doing it. That's how you – well, these are a bit – monstera is a bit different, but some of the other species of monstera we layer and just mm. put the roots, cut it all up and pot them up. Yep. You know? Yeah, so there you go. So layering would be where I'd go with the hydrangea. No, I think it was last – no, it must be two weeks ago. Mary from Clifton Hill was asking about Clematis integrifolia rugucci, R-O-O-G-U-C-H-I. Yeah, there's a few cultivars of integrifolia getting around. What did she want to know about She's looking for anybody who might have it. I thought you might, but obviously not. No, I haven't got any integrifolia forms at the moment. Um has she tried what's the clematis nursery alameda? They're more the ornamental. I imagine she has. And then the most the ornamental types. But I have seen some, some of these herbaceous I, clematis in their I, range. I, I, we are saying this all the time, but there will definitely be um, clematis at the plant fair next mm. weekend. Mm. Whether there's that, that cultivar, I don't know. Yeah, yeah mm. so integrifolia is a lovely sort of herbaceous perennial one. It's not a climbing one. Mm. Um, and they have sort of blue nodding bells, beautiful things, and they're very popular in Europe, but you don't see them grown much here. And that actually does raise another issue. If somebody comes into the nursery asking for a clematis, you can bank on the fact that they're looking for a climber. If they're looking for a perennial, they're not coming in asking for a clematis. So plants like that that aren't of the classical mould of that genus have a tendency to fall between stools because, yeah, it's like the climbing hydrangeas. Mm. People come in asking for a Heidi and I say, well, do you want a climbing one or a a shrub one? They'll go, what, a climbing one? You know, so it's not their expectation of that genus of plants. And so... Yeah, herbaceous perennial clematis can be really useful plants and there's some lovely ones out there, but they're not climbers. So you use them in a completely different way um, and to all intents and purposes, they're, they're a different group of plants as far as the gardener's concerned. But they're really beautiful, those 
non-climbing oh, clematis. Some gorgeous ones. There mm. really are some stunningly beautiful ones, but you'd rarely see them grown here, uh, sadly. I played with them for a while uh, and was growing a few of the interesting herbaceous ones, uh, but they're also slow to propagate and there's a lot of fiddle and faffing around with them. So uh, because they didn't sell terribly well, I sort of went off the boil a bit with them, but I, they, they are lovely. I'd hate to think of how many plants that we've lost because they didn't sell well mm. and they're now no longer available in the country. And it does scare me a little bit. Um, Absolutely. That if we don't have the Stephen Ryans, the Ben Barves doing, doing this, mm. you know, Meryl from – how many of the perennial people have dropped out? Misty Downs, mm. country farm perennials, mm. antique perennials aren't doing what they used to do. I, I, and I know the Botanic Gardens has its collections, yeah. but even those are falling over. And a huge loss of, of oh. plant biodiversity. And sometimes we throw the word biodiversity around incorrectly, as far as I'm concerned. Biodiversity is diverse bi- biology, biology yeah. not getting rid of all that stuff and just having the ones that we think are important. And I worry that we're going to lose some of these plants and the well, knowledge we how are, to grow Clive. Them. We are definitely losing plants. I mean, there's lots of stuff that I used to stock uh, mm. that I could buy from other growers yeah. uh, that I just can't get anymore. And you are president of Plant Trust. Explain yes, Plant Trust. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah, that could be a good segue into Plant Trust. Uh, for those who aren't aware, uh, the organisation called Plant Trust now, we have had a couple of different name changes over mm. the years, but we are now Plant Trust, um, registers collections. So if somebody has a really good collection of, I don't know, hellebores, for instance. We used to have the diacea, rosemary yeah. and lavender collections, yeah. but time's disappeared. We lost them, mm. you know. Well, it's had- about time we reassessed your collections. <laughs> yes. You know, there must oh. be something up there that you could be holding a national collection of. Uh, and um, so we register the collections. Uh, the collection holders uh, submit paperwork to us so that we know what's there. Um, and the the overall idea is to try and help uh, some of this biodiversity survive because if something is going to happen to the owner of a collection, which it's bound to do in due mm. course, um, we can hopefully step in and help the collection be moved on to a new home. Uh, we can make sure that the uh, plant material is spread because it's all very well to have a collection, but we don't want people to have the one and only mm. of anything because that's that's just causing disaster. Counterproductive. Yeah. yeah, so we want to encourage them to spread the plant material around. For instance, sake, I hold the one of the my national collections is the collection of acanthus that I've got in my garden at home. We've got a new one coming in. Oh, white, white water. Uh-huh. It's a really beautiful white variegated form of uh, mollus. All right. Well, I need a plant of that in due course, please, Clive. <laughs> uh, and anyhow, so I hold the national collection of acanthus in my garden at Macedon. Um, not all of which I propagate from, but mm. I've got the, the plants there. Uh, and I've been sharing my collection with John Shelley down at Warrnambool Botanic Gardens. And he's also got a secondary mm. – uh, well, it's not secondary. It's probably more important than mine. He has a diff- another collection yeah. of acanthus. And so if he's got something I haven't got, he will give it to me. And if I've got something he hasn't got, he gives it to me. I like the fact that the collection is also in a botanic gardens because there's – the potential for it to go on uh, longer than I'm going to go on. Uh, And so that's what Plant Trust is all about. So we try and encourage people to hold collections, to come to our events and be involved with the organisation and help support it financially Um, and, you know, just get involved with the idea of holding on to that biodiversity. And you you could be a home gardener in Melbourne and hold a collection of some of the alpine type, those small plants. You could hold a a good collection. And you don't have to have... 
the comprehensive collection. No, it just has to be a representative be, collection yeah. and, and it has to be appropriately labelled, yeah. of course, but we need well, to know the, what you've got. And probably nobody can have the whole collection because things grow in different environments and mm-hmm. if it grows in one place, it won't necessarily grow in mm-hmm. another. But, yeah, well, John Bentley has a succulent collection in his not terribly big garden in Melton and he's got the national collection of which ones he got? Is it gastrolobiums or yes. something like that? Yes, yes, it is gastrolobiums. Yes. Yeah, and so he's got a national collection and it's all sitting on some staging in his back garden. Yeah. Um, and his wife is collecting species cyclamen or cyclamen, which And that's the yeah. other thing. There's collecting cultivars and there's collecting species. Yeah, exactly. And, and we need both. And mm. the more species collection you have, the better chance you've got for breeding. Yeah. If you don't have the species, yeah. then you're not going to have any breeding. And I'd like to put in a plea for Australian cultivars because our Australian cultivars often don't end up going overseas. And so if we lose a cultivar here, and I'm not talking specifically about Australian native plants, I'm just talking about plants bred here. Mm. Uh, And a classic example of that is back between the wars, there was a breeder who was growing all sorts of interesting cannas. I was just about to mention that. Yeah. And And the canna lily collection went from Australia to the UK And I have a person trying to re-import it back again. Yeah. We just have to work out how to get them through the xylella treatment. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're going to be coming back from Good, the UK to because here. Because the national collection holder of that group here uh, is the um, Bendigo Botanic Gardens. Oh. And uh, they collect species and... Species, old cultivars and Australian hybrids mm. is what they're interested in. And they've got a few of Mr Cole's canners still up there, which were of mm. that ilk. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of those things just disappear altogether if they're not protected and, and registered and, and what have you, uh, and also shared around. So that, from my perspective, that's the really important thing. One I'd love to see is a collection of center pelargoniums. I reckon that'll be the Well, we sort collection. of have. We've got a collection Geelong. of Geelong. Yeah. It's, but it's not specifically <laughs> the scented ones. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a mixture. And it goes up and down in yeah. its um, uh, in its uh, species and cultivars yeah. and things that it has in the collection. Um, and I'm hoping that it will move forward because they've that got... That is a, Geelong Botanic yeah. Gardens. Yeah, Geelong Botanic way. Gardens. Uh, they have a dedicated um, structure to grow all their mm. pelagoniums mm. in that was built by somebody who bequeathed the money to the garden specifically for that purpose and uh so yeah so there's lots of plants out there i I know reading old catalogues and things i mean once upon a time we had 45 different varieties of um bavardias in australia how many could you get today probably two three maybe well at our peak we had over 300 lavenders yeah Mm. we're down to about 50 now yeah it's a shame yeah well bendigo's also got a lavender collection that's registered it's, it's also it's lost a lot of the, the um, small, minor, the tender ones, the unusual yeah. ones. I actually had a, an email from someone in working in, near the Red Sea chasing some Arabian lavender. <laughs> said, Goodness so me. I, I don't have the seed, but I'd love to get it if you can. Mm. It's a beautiful lavender from Oman. Yeah. I'd love to get it. But they, they don't understand the Middle East. They will not let the seed come out now. Mm. It's our but- seed. We're going to keep it. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. That's actually happening a lot around the world, actually, that sort of thing about... And and how inappropriate, given the climate is changing, and Mm. now maybe the only way you can keep something going is by moving it to another country. Also, how short-sighted... Oh, man's interesting, though. It does have a botanic garden. It does. We've had the person staying with us. She's done a talk at two IPPS conferences. It's a beautiful little botanic gardens. And we even had the Dermot Muller, who's now the senior curator at Melbourne, and David Hancock from WA spent a few weeks in Oman teaching about propagation and regeneration. So Because they'd originally asked... 
the Brits, and of course the climate yeah. meant the Brits didn't really know. No, but no. it's but it's what I believe we shouldn't be holding the, this our sea. We should be letting it get out and letting it breed, and creating genetic defo- uh, diversity. Mm. Yeah. Now we have another question. Ah. Margaret wants to move a ten-year-old Eliacarpus to a damper spot. Can we give her some advice? Hmm. <laughs> Stephen's um, I'm not sure how well a large Eliacarpus... No, 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 she didn't say large, she said 10 years old, so we don't know how big it is. Is it, is it big? Has it been pruned? Is it? Well, mm. even so, I mean, I think their roots wouldn't cope terribly well with a You'd with need a to take a very big root they They're not Eliacarpus, are they? No, no. Eliacarpus are in Eliacarpaceae. Oh, <laughs> their own family. Yeah. Um... um I don't see them as a plant that would shift well. I mean, I've never tried. Um, and, of course, there's, you know, it's always nice to be able to prove people wrong. Um, but um, and I'm assuming it's Eliacarpus. Did we say reticulatus or no? Well, I'm assuming it's reticulatus being the most commonly grown species out there. Um, but they're reasonably readily available commercially. I'd be more inclined to buy another one. And, and you start can buy some quite large ones. Yeah. But if, you, if, you, if you're going to have to move it, then what I would be doing is I'd start now putting the spade down about a metre out yeah. around the – because you've still got active root growth in the warm soil. So go out about a metre from the, the trunk and dig a circle all the way around to chop the roots off so it'll put mm. younger roots in close. And then maybe in the middle of depths of winter, try moving it then. Mm. I mean, we, we potted up – we planted some large two-and-a-half-metre earlier carpus and it took them a year before they started to look good again. Mm. And then they took off. I moved to Camellia and it took three. Mm. Yes, and that is the other thing that I think Margaret needs to take on board. It might take a while for it to yeah. recover. And, and that's when you've patient. got to start working out the value, uh, and I'm not talking about the monetary value necessarily, but the time and effort that goes into shifting something. Are you going to win in the long run? Are you going to gain by what you're doing? Or is it quicker and simpler and easier to buy a new plant and install that in place so you've got a young, vigorous undisturbed plant that will hit the ground running. Different question, though. Perhaps the gain is having the pleasure of actually moving it. Yeah, look, you, you could so be the, right yeah. there. That's the actual pleasure of doing the moving. Yeah, but as a busy gardener... But not everybody's a busy gardener. Yeah. When you think about it, it did happen in the Botanic Gardens in the 1850s. Oh, yeah, they shifted great big trees around. Huge trees. Have you ever seen the documentary when they moved the huge ficus at the zoo? Mm. There was outside the zoo and they were inside the zoo. That was a big one. And there's another one in South Africa where they moved these trees. That they had to close the whole road to move these trees. Yeah. Well, even in Perth, in the Western mm. Australian King's Park Gardens, they moved a, a baobab from the Kimberleys down there. And they not Stem only moved. Good. No, and it's never going to look good. But they put blankets around mm. it in the winter and they do all sorts of things to try and keep this poor bloody but baobab su- tree going from the Kimberley. My suggestion is dig out around the back of it, break mm. all the roots. Give it lots of good high phosphorus fertiliser to get the roots going and growing. Trim the top, when you come to move it, trim the top mm. back quite significantly so it's um, not, doesn't not suck as much moisture through. And then move it into a big hole. Make sure the hole's well well aerated. The soil's all good. It's all dug up and turned over. Mm. Lots of fertiliser and moisture in there. Lots of your seaweed based products. Uh, and Sue from Mount Evelyn has texted in that Eliocarpus is very easy to prop too. Yeah. Yeah, they're not that hard to propagate. But you can certainly go out and buy quite good-sized mm. plants too. So I always look at the – I mean, it sounds ruthless, but I always look at the 
the possible scenarios that are going to come about, the amount of time and effort that it's going to take to do the actual physical moving, and how long I think it's going to be before the plant is going to be performing well again in my garden, if at all, uh, before I'll go to the effort to shift things. Especially if it's a small garden. Yeah. I, I moved this this camellia and it took three years to recover, but my garden's big enough that I could ignore it. While yeah, well, that's happening. the other thing too. You know, a garden should be a place that you can go out and enjoy. You don't want to go out into the garden and have plants uh, making you feel guilty <laughs> because of what you've done to well, them. When we put our new quarantine facility and I had my Camellia Civic to Davies, the first one mm. I bought in 25 years ago and it had been hanging on. And um, we had a backhoe, dug it out, put it in a, about a 45 centimetre pot. Within a year, it's chirping away, growing away, mm. putting on new growth and about to plant it back in the ground now. Excellent. Uh, good. This is the 3CR Garden Show. I'm Virginia Haywood and with me are Stephen Ryan and Clive Larkman. We've got time for maybe one more f- or two more phone calls if you want to ring in 94190155 or 0488809855 for a text. Or if you're listening to your podcast and you want to send something in for next week's program, gardening at 3cr.org.au. And we will deal with that next week. Because next week, we um, AB will be here with Loretta Charles and Greg Balderston. So they'll very happily take your emails. On that text, by the way, we can't take photos. We just can't manage that. Now we have another text come in. Erythrina bidwillii was bred in Australia in the 1850s and I've seen it in nurseries overseas and yet I've never seen it here. The botanic gardens won't propagate it to sell because of other apparently weedy species. Erythrina bidwillii is sterile, so it can't be a problem. Mm, Beautiful thing too. Um, I propped a little bit of it a few years ago for somebody, but we're too cold for erythrinas up at Mount Macedon, so I'm not interested in growing them on and keeping them. I mean, don't even know it. uh, It's well, you know the ordinary coral tree, Erythrina Mm. cristigali, with its bright scarlety flowers on it and spiky stems. I'm always getting attacked by that thing. Um, uh, It's similar to that, a bit more tree-like. I can't remember what the parentage is, but the flowers are more burgundy, livery sort of colour. It's a really rich, dark colour. It's a beautiful thing, Bidwillii. Um, and they're right, it's sterile, so it can't become weedy. Um, it is a quite large plant, so it can become quite big. Um, and if I remember rightly, I grew it from uh, stem cuttings well below the flowered tip on the stem um, uh, under a misspray system when I did it years ago and got a few to strike. Uh, but I couldn't keep them going through the winter, so I grew it for somebody else who wanted it for their garden and passed it on. Um, but I couldn't keep it alive, so I didn't do it anymore. And I don't know anybody who is, in fact, propagating it, sadly. Well, at some stage, we must ask somebody from the Botanic Gardens why they won't propagate it if it's sterile. Yeah, well, it does seem we ask unfortunate. John Arnott, that question. Yeah, I'll write it down so we remember. And yes, there may be other reasons. I mean, the botanic gardens have a whole range of um, prescribed um, things that they try to adhere to for 
all sorts of biosecurity reasons mm. and all sorts of other things. So it may not necessarily be because they're worried about its weediness. It might be another issue. Uh, I don't know what it would be, but it's possible. Uh, but it certainly would be a plant well worth growing because I think with climate change coming on, the erythrinas are going to be the type of plant that will probably cope with an awful lot of climate change and still come through the other side. They're highly ornamental plants. They're very showy, uh, good foliage. Uh, they'll cope with any amount of heat. Uh, so, yeah, so mm. they should be grown more. And, I mean, even in my garden, I can grow erythrina cristigali and I treat it as a coppiced plant so I just cut it back to a stump each um, each winter it took a winter uh, a year or two for it to get enough vigor to be off and away but now that it's got a really solid trunk underneath it if the frost hits it it just takes all of the new growth out of it and then it shoots again in the spring from the old stump and of course that's silly because it was bred in Australia I was thinking it was Australian it's not a John Arnott question it's a question for the yeah it's probably more for Tim Entwistle or somebody from the Absolutely. Melbourne bot gardens or Yes, it's well, not a native plant. German Molloy, our new curator. Yeah. Because when you think about it, erythrina is weedy. I wouldn't grow it at my place because I think it would probably get away. I, it mm. pops up, but which doesn't matter in the botanic gardens mm. because it's not going to... Yeah, it can't get out there. It's not getting out, no. But, yes, but it... But, but it, it would will, matter in my place. Oh, yeah, possibly. Although I would have thought you'd be just on the cusp of cold enough not for it to be a real problem. Mm. Uh, it's more in the warmer climates where I think it's potentially going to be a real problem. But has anybody seen the indicas, the erythrina indicas in flower in, in the city when they're in bloom? There's one growing just near that circular fountain just opposite the art gallery, you know, when you're walking up to go up onto... Uh, um, Linlithgow Avenue, you've got that circular pond with a, an upright fountain in it. There's a big erythrina indica there, and there's also one in the building um, opposite the art centre on the road that goes down towards South Bank. Ah, yes. There's a big one there. I think it's also one of the arts precincts buildings, a, an old brick building on the side there, and there's a huge erythrina indica there. And when they're in flower... My God, they are stunningly beautiful. Well, I think the coral trees in the botanic gardens are absolutely wonderful. Mm. You surround, well, after Christmas when they flower there. Yeah. Mm. I mean, the botanic gardens is looking fabulous at the moment, mm. just fabulous. Yes, and we actually, that's another thing I should just mention in passing. This week's YouTube video was an interview with Tim Entwistle uh, on our YouTube channel, so that was posted on Friday. And we've got three more videos coming up that we did all on the one day. We've got one coming up on cold hardy palms, and we used the Botanic Gardens palms for that. We've got one on the New Caledonian uh, oricarias that we did. And I did a video, I don't know how people are going to uh, bond with this one necessarily, but I just went round and spontaneously selected plants around the Botanic Gardens that are not in cultivation or only tenuously so, that are really good plants and should be propagated and grown more in um, in people's gardens. So there was about half a dozen or eight plants that I went round and talked about. I pointed out some of the reasons why I think they're possibly not in cultivation, uh, and we showed the mature plants to show people that they're probably worth being in cultivation. Um, so we're going to put those to wear over the next four weeks or well, the next three weeks. That sounds really interesting. So yeah, so the first one's already up with the interview with Tim and his favourite thing in the garden. So you'll have to go and to see what that is, um, uh, much to Matthew and my bemusement, I have to say, but anyhow. Um, and we've got the three other videos coming up over the next three Fridays. So that sounds, should be good. Sounds good. Right, I've got two questions. Amaranthus, where would that be available? You should be able to get it for seed from seed. diggers. 
New Gippsland seed farm, perhaps. Probably Merrill. Maybe yeah. Merrill. Seedscape seeds. Yeah, seedscape seeds. And she seeds. will be there and there's next weekend. One up in Queensland as well. It grows a lot of heritage vegetables and things. And I can't for green, life. Green patch. Could be it. Uh, They'd probably have it as well. And, of course, if anybody's got amaranthus growing in their garden, um, very easy to collect your own seed as well. Uh, It comes up in my vegetable garden all over the place. Um, And fabulous plant. I love it. I mean, I I pick the leaves and use them as a green. Um, I pick the flowers and use them in the house. Uh, I don't collect the seed and try and grow my own amaranthus grain because I can't see the point in that. But it just comes up spontaneously in my garden every year. So once you've got it, you should always have amaranthus coming up. Absolutely. The next question is when to proper... How is... Try again, Virginia. When is the best time to propagate Viburnum calicii? <laughs> which is a mid, stunning mid, plant. Mid to late spring. Yeah. When all the new growth is just firming up. Yeah, but don't expect it to take like a fuchsia or a hydrangea. No, no. Not that easy to no, propagate. No, no. It'll uh, take a while. It really does need some bottom heat. It needs some, some high humidity in these really good condition. It's it's not an easy one. Yeah, and that's why you don't see true calicii around the trade very often. In no, fact, the reason you don't see it around the trade is nobody wants to buy it. I buy I it. I think it's Yeah, but, but you're, not, you're, gonna, you're gonna buy ten. No, yeah. no, I'd buy half a tray or a tray. I always buy you know But, but for a commercial propagator like us, we've really got to do two to three hundred. Yeah. And that's a minimum and we'll struggle to sell it. Um, Which is sad. Although I have to say there's a fair bit of Viburnum juddii sneaking around mm. the trade as Carlisii. And so I don't mm. buy it from anybody because nine times out of ten, the wrong plant arrives in my make nursery. Sure, make sure we've got the right ones. Yeah, well, I, well show me your plant. I'll mm. easily pick it because yeah. juddii is actually a hybrid of Carlisii and it gets around the trade a fair bit because it's actually easy to propagate. Yeah. And it's been wrongly labelled in lots of nurseries and it's easy to pick because Carlisii has an almost circular leaf. Juddii has a leaf that comes down to a bit of a point. Um, But uh, they're both good plants, but I do like to get my plants correctly named. I think our Carlisii has been in the ground 30-something years. Yeah, and so it's probably the right thing because I think it's more currently that it's become muddled up in the trade, unfortunately. That's a real issue. As a propagator, we can't propagate plants mm. unless you're going to sell a reasonable number of them. Mm. And so a lot drop out just because there's no money in it for us to do it. No. Oh, look, I can understand the, the pressures of uh, commercial mm. growing. Um, and in your case, because you do mainly tubes and plugs yeah. and small plants, you do have to have them in quantity. I just get a little annoyed by some of the nursery people that have drop things out of their range because they're a little harder to propagate instead of just saying, all right, well, I'm going to charge more. Uh, to cover my time. But we now have this problem that our marketplace is dominated by the big boys mm. and it's a six-inch pot. It sells mm. for that price. Yeah. You must produce it for that price and we're not interested in anything yeah. else. But and, see, that's... And, and things that don't sell because they don't look good in pots but oh, actually that's look other. fabulous yeah. in my, the my favourite one is salvia discolour. Mm. We cannot sell that whole commercially in large quantities. You take it to a plant show, it's one of the first things that sells out. Yeah, the, yeah it's sad. Um, but, you know, the, the price... Growing to a price is one of the things that's killing the nursery industry, basically. Um, uh, I would prefer to pay more. Uh, there's a certain comedia grower in the Dandenongs that I have been hounding for years to grow some of his rare species comedians. Mm. And I say, I'll put in a permanent order for 20 or 30 plants of each species every year. You won't have to market them. You won't have to sell them to anybody. And I'll pay double the price that you get for your general comedians. It's not enough. Because yeah. it's not just that it's hard to strike. It's that you've got to stop growing what you're growing 
So you've got to make sure your staff member stops with that, cleans all the bench down, wipes it out, gets the new ones in, doesn't mm. mix the labels up, mm. <laughs> gets all the cuttings. So it's it's not just the, that. It's it's It stops your production to put in a run of 20. And believe me, I would love to do it, but my wife tells me all the time, we can't do that because it's not economical yeah. to grow. Oh, look, I can understand plants. all that, but it's going to kill the nursery industry if we don't have this interesting plant material. Or we build up the Ben Favs, the, the Stephen Ryans yeah. of the world, who have the small, unusual nurseries. We, we do do a bit of both because we have our mail order business and we now have our romantic nursery, so we can grow some big and unusual plants. But then they say, well, we can't sell it, it's got a label. And to do a label, we've got to do 1500 Oh, yeah, that's the other issue. I have this issue with giant labels. If you've got to move the label aside to see the plant, the label's too big. <laughs> yeah, and also you don't want to put the label in the garden because it's hideous, but you like to keep a plant label. I know. Give but, me small labels we, any day. We, we have trouble selling a plant in flower without a label showing a picture of the flower. <sighs> what is the world coming to? I have and to in say. Europe they look at us and laugh because in Europe you sell the plant in bud. Yeah. And they look at us and say... You're dumb. Why are you buying a plant in full flower? That way the nourishment's had the pleasure of the plant. You don't. Mm. It's just the way we've... we've, Yeah, look, the market is what it is Mm. uh, to a large extent, but uh, I just, you know, and I know I'm a small grower and I'm probably not a particularly important cog in the wheel of uh, horticultural industry, but at the end of the day, we end up getting what we deserve if we don't push the industry forward. If we're not promoting new plants, if we're not promoting things that are going to sell in smaller quantities, we're going to end up with iceberg roses, golden diosmas and James Sterling Potosperas. Well, I said that, I said that 30 years ago and we didn't. Yeah, but, but we're heading that it's, way. It's getting hard to get gold diosmas now. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. When I moved to my place, it was the only thing there. It was hideous. Now we're going to have to wind up in a minute, so I just wanted to say that on May the 20th and 21st, the Yarra Valley Bonsai Club has their show, which is going to be 33 Kimberley Drive in Churnside Park. They've got over 100 trees on display, so do put that in your diary. Yarra Valley Bonsai Club show, 20 and 21st of May. It's in behind Churnside Park Shopping Centre. Oh, yeah. And it is time for us to say goodbye. It certainly is. <laughs> As I said, next week AB will be presenting and um, I hope a lot of you turn up at the Yarra Valley Plant mm. Show this Come and weekend. say hello. I'd, I'd like to see the faces of some mm. of our regular viewers. And it supports all our small growers that yeah. come along and gives them a reason to be by coming to these plant fairs and talking to other passionate plant people. Yes, exactly. Okay, thank you everybody. I hope you've enjoyed our show today. Goodbye. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.